Greetings and welcome to another episode of From John to Justin, where I started out looking at every Prime Minister in Canadian history, and we're right in the middle of every opposition leader who never became Prime Minister, but we took a break from that, because an election was called. So right now I'm doing 36 election episodes in a row, to coincide with our 36 day election period. If you want to support the podcast, you can, for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate. Don't forget, I have three other podcasts out there. Canadian History X, which releases every Wednesday and Saturday. Canada's Great War, which releases every single Sunday. And Coast to Coast, which releases every single Thursday. I do all of these full-time. The writing, the research, everything. I do it every day, all day. And it's a lot of work. So, any dollars you give help keep it all going, and I'll make sure to thank you on the air and throughout my social media. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D. And I'm on Instagram at Bairdo37. After the monumental change brought forward by the 1993 election, things were a bit more stable and relaxed going into the 1997 election. The election came only two years after the 1995 Quebec referendum, which asked voters whether or not Quebec should proclaim national sovereignty and become an independent country. The vote would take place on October 30, 1995, featuring the largest voter turnout in Quebec history, with 93.52% of voters casting their vote. The no side would win, barely, with 50.58% of the vote. With the loss, Jacques Parizeau, the Premier of Quebec, resigned from his post. The election of 1997, as a result, would be dominated by the worry of Quebec leaving Canada, with some believing that a new referendum could come as early as later in 1997 or in 1998. Over the previous three and a half years, the Liberals had suffered in popularity due to cuts in several sectors in order to balance the budget. The 1995 budget was historic in its cuts, which reduced the size of government departments and reduced the transfer payments to provincial governments for health, welfare, and education. Despite this, there was still little doubt among commentators of another Liberal win, with most predicting at least a minority government. Parliament would be dissolved on April 26, 1997, with the election scheduled for June 2, 1997. The calling of the election after three years and five months made it the earliest election call by a majority government since 1911. There was also anger within the Liberal Party over the decision to call the election early, especially as Manitoba was still recovering from the catastrophic Red River flood that hit in April and May. This allowed the critics of Chrétien and the other parties to portray him as insensitive and forcing the country to go to the polls because he thought he could win. Voting in nine Manitoba ridings would be impacted by the flood, and Preston Manning would announce that he would not campaign in the flood-hit areas as he did not want to politicize the disaster, and he refused to allow television cameras to film him viewing the disaster from a plane. Jean Charest, leader of the Progressive Conservatives, would state, quote, He should have asked or consulted with the chief electoral officer before calling the election. I would have thought that was one of the reasons why he visited Manitoba before calling the election. End quote. All parties would pull ads from running in Manitoba during the election as well. The day after the election call, the Liberals polled well in places like Alberta at 36%, while the Reform were at 29%, and the Progressive Conservatives were at 27%. Unemployment remained the main issue for voters, polling at 29%, which was lower than in 1993. 
Social programs, national unity, and health care were also concerns for voters comprising 15, 10, and 10 percent respectively. Liberals would campaign on a promise of cutting the federal deficit to allow for a budget surplus and then using half the surplus to repay Canada's national debt and cut taxes, while the remaining part of the surplus would be used to fund health care, assistance for children in poverty, and job creation. Called securing our future together, the Liberals were attacked almost immediately by the opposition parties for what they saw as failed promises from the 1993 election. The Liberals would promise to constitutionally recognize Quebec as a distinct society as well in an effort to strengthen national unity. And unlike the smooth sailing campaign of 1993, the Liberals would suffer a few gaffes. One of the most notable was Chrétien's inability to give a cost on what the National Pharmacare Program would be. Chrétien also did very few interviews, turning down many interviews with the major news outlets, Much Music, and the CBC. The Reform Party would campaign on the promise of preserving national unity by decentralizing power within the federal government and giving it to the provinces. This would include no longer having the federal government enforce the Canada Health Act. Provinces would also get power over language and culture. Their platform was called Fresh Start for All Canadians, and they would run candidates in all regions of Canada, the first and only time the party would do so. In mid-May during the campaign, Preston Manning would also promise a referendum on abortion, stating that he would hold referendums on that issue and on capital punishment. The Reform Party had actually created their platform a year before the election as well, with the hope they would move away from just being a Western party. The Reform Party had found new problems internally as well, since its success in the previous election. This included intolerant views held by several Reform MPs, while tensions in the party came about over criticism of Preston Manning and his $31,000 personal allowance as leader. Manning had also gone through a complete makeover before the election. His glasses would be gone replaced with contacts, he would wear leather jackets, and his hair was styled differently. Manning would attack Chrétien for a variety of reasons, including saying he was too old to lead. This is somewhat ironic since Chrétien was only 8 years older than Manning. Manning would state, quote, during the first week, he's virtually disappeared. He went for a walk in the woods and took a rest. This is not exactly the vigorous kind of energy that's required to take a country into the 21st century. End quote. The Bloc Québécois were now under the leadership of Gilles Duceppe after Lucien Bouchard had left to pursue provincial politics, becoming the premier of Quebec in the process. The party was dealing with sagging popularity after the failure of the Quebec referendum and the loss of Bouchard as leader. The party polled at 35% of decided voters in mid-May of 1997, but the party would start to suffer setbacks, including kind of a minor one, when Duceppe wore a hairnet while touring a cheese factory, creating an image that was mocked throughout Canada. Several French newspapers in Quebec would make fun of the look, comparing it to that of a condom. When it came to performance in the first week, though, the Bloc Québécois was by far the worst. They put their leader in a hairnet to tour a cheese factory and it provided the strongest image of the campaign. Quebec cartoonist had a field day with Gilles Duceppe. He was becoming a figure of derision, a political disaster. Then in week two, the Quebec newspaper Le Soleil printed excerpts from Jacques Parizeau's new book. The former premier suggested he would have declared sovereignty right after the 1995 referendum, despite his campaign promises to Quebecers. Taken unawares, Gilles Duceppe watches this new crisis build in the day's news coverage. 
he has been blindsided. At best, it looks as if Dusef was out of touch with crucial decisions. At worst, that he was a party to deception. It's not easy for me today. I know that some people won't be pleased with what I say. The new Democratic Party was now led by Alexa McDonough, and they hoped to regain their party status after a poor showing in 1993. The party would campaign on the promise of raising federal cash transfers to $15 billion, while also imposing national standards on provincial welfare programs, low tuition fees, and enforcing the Canada Health Act. The party would also attack both the Liberals and the Reform Party heavily. In one instance, McDonough stated that the Reform Party would lead Canada to a civil war. She would state, quote, Preston Manning feasts, he feeds, on the kind of decisiveness that the Kretchen government has allowed to develop and that the Mulroney government set in motion. I think it is absolutely clear that where Preston Manning's policies would lead us in the country is straight into a civil war, end quote. Manning would state that her comments were a sign of desperation, saying, quote, It sounds to me like she kind of went over the top. That is the last thing anyone in the federal political arena, no matter what their political stripe, is advocating. End quote. Manning would have further issues when protesters during a Guelph speech yelled racist, sexist, and anti-gay. Unable to talk over the protesters, Manning would leave before his speech was finished. Manning's mother, Muriel, even get involved, attacking Chan after the Prime Minister cited her deceased husband, Ernest, who he said wouldn't support Preston's campaign. She would say, quote, Is Mr. Chan so desperate to defend his position that he has had to drum up support from the grave? End quote. As for the Progressive Conservatives, Kim Campbell was long gone as leader and the party was led by Jean Charest, one of only two candidates to keep their seat in Parliament in the 1993 election. The party would campaign on national unity, a common theme because of the Quebec referendum, promising to recognize Quebec as a distinct society, but the party would concentrate on a division of powers. Unlike in previous elections, the party had little in the way of finances and had to build from the bottom up since it was not an official party in Parliament anymore. In the election, many voters talked about the apathy they had for the election after what they felt were two decades of lies from both parties. Denny MacDonald of New Glasgow would state, quote, We've been lied to too much. They're all the same. They say what they're going to do, and then they don't do any of it. End quote. Rainy Schmidt, a retired accountant, would state, quote, So far, I'm not hearing much that excites me. End quote. Many voters were also looking back at the progressive conservatives, hoping for a strong opposition, rather than a diluted one made up of four parties. Andrew Townsend, who lived in Ontario, would state, quote, Now I know who they are. Brian Mulroney isn't part of it anymore, and Jean Charest knows where he's going. End quote. In the campaign, the Reform Party would run a television ad that featured the faces of Prime Minister Chrétien, Bloc Québécois leader Duceppe, Progressive Conservative leader Jean Charest, and Quebec Premier Lucien Bouchard, with all their names crossed out with a message that Quebec politicians had dominated the federal government for too long. The advertisement was criticized by the other parties for being intolerant and bigoted. This would be the first federal election in Canadian history in which the internet would play a role, along with computer technology. An example of this was seen in the Progressive Conservatives' use of a CD-ROM to publicly distribute their platform to the Canadian public. For the first time, the internet is firmly embedded in our electoral process. No one knows the exact numbers for sure, but there could be something like 200 home pages out there devoted exclusively to the 97 campaign. 
the net is changing the public's involvement with politics more profoundly and more quickly than anyone ever dreamed possible. Jim Carroll, the Toronto writer who's become the guru of the internet. People from all walks of life um, are using it and, and um, they're slowly discovering it's a tool to get up-to-date information. Uh, they're developing an expectation that if you want more background about what's going on, this is the place to go um, to get it. All the major political parties have their own websites. Some candidates have theirs too. But there's also been an explosion of other home pages. You don't have to be a large party to have your own site, even the Communist Party of Canada. Um, has, has created their own little location on the internet where they make available um, their own information. New sites appear online. This is the um, uh, site um, from the Financial Post and other organizations. There are individuals who are taking um, different approaches. Here's a fellow at um, Harvard University who has created a site in which he's trying to predict um, uh, province by province, riding by riding, um, who is going to win. Um, activists are getting involved in the site. Um, we're traveling here uh, to, uh, to a location put up by um, uh, lesbians, gays and bisexuals, um, trying to provide that community information on how you can uh, get involved in the election and make politicians aware of, of, of the issues and um, things like that. The usual debates were held as well, with Jean Charest being seen as doing the best in the English language debates even earning a round of applause in the first debate from the audience, the only time they clapped, after he stated he wanted to keep the country together and pass it on to his children as it was passed on to his parents. Good evening. Millions of Canadians tuned in a made-for-TV political drama tonight. It ran two and a half hours, and it challenged viewers to decide who they want running their country. The election debate on national television featured five party leaders fighting for the spotlight and feuding over every major issue. Our coverage of tonight's on-air debate begins with Sasha Petrosik. The kind of excitement you might expect to kick off a federal election campaign finally came tonight, two weeks into it. Outside, hints of the debate to come, reminders of promises made and broken, leaders clutching good luck charms, determined to protect a lead, to make an impact to change the course of this campaign. One leader, the Bloc Gilles Duceppe, slipped in through a back door. It's not the time to change the course. The attack on Liberal leader Jean Chrétien started on the issue of jobs. I challenged Mr. Chrétien on this. I mean, your record is, you know, you made this promise last time, jobs, jobs, jobs. You, the Conservative Party, the Reform Party, are promising trying to buy votes in promising tax cuts we're, that we're are premature. I don't think the Prime Minister, Mr. Critzan, realizes that uh, there are a lot of Canadians suffering out there in Atlantic Canada and the West who have, don't have jobs. We it's had, still time for a change. We had to take over the mess that you left us. 1.5 million Canadians unemployed when you were elected Prime Minister. 1.5 Canadians unemployed today. Is that your idea of balance? Next, the leaders were asked about health care, but that too turned into an attack on Chrétien, a question of credibility. The Prime Minister wants to share with us, maybe this Prime Minister wants to share with us the cabinet documents on which that You haven't done one single thing to reinvest any of the money in health care that you've taken out. I heard you promise to maintain health transfers at the current level, and you stopped and you said, I guarantee it. The fact is you've cut the health and social transfer by $7 billion or by 40000 well, it's a good thing Mr. Kretzian didn't say it was a money-back guarantee, 
Otherwise, he'd be broke today. The most notable part of the debates was when the moderator fainted during the opening segment of the French debate when Jean Chrétien was talking. This put an early end to the debate. And while debates in the past had upwards of 7 to 8 million viewers, the debates of 1997 had 1.265 million, below even the 1.7 million that watched in 1993. In 1988, nearly 4 million people watched the debate between Mulroney and Turner. By May 27th, only days before the election, polls put the Liberals at a minority government, with the party falling below 40% in popular support for the first time since before the 1993 election. The Progressive Conservatives sat at 21%, while the Reform Party was at 17%. In a poll on May 30th, Jean Charest was cited as the top choice among polled Canadians for the person they wanted to be Prime Minister. By June 1st, the parties were trading some intense attacks. Manning would call the Conservatives a walking corpse, stating that they just want money to trot their corpse out and dress it up. Charest, in response, said he would never work with the Reform Party due to their ads that attacked French Canadians. McDonough would attack the Liberals, stating that they used thug-like tactics to retain their stranglehold on Atlantic Canada. In the June 2nd, 1997 election, the Liberals lost 19 seats to finish with 155 seats, one more than was needed for a majority government. The Reform Party pushed out the Bloc Québécois, gaining 10 seats to finish with 60, becoming the official opposition. The Bloc Québécois lost 6 seats to finish with 44, as other parties made inroads into Quebec after being mostly shut out in 1993. The New Democratic Party would rebound from their terrible election result in 1993, picking up 12 seats to finish with 21. This election result allowed the party to regain its official party status. On the progressive conservative side of things, any increase in seats would be seen as a victory. In the end, the party had the best seat increase of all the parties, gaining 18 seats to finish with 20, staying as the fifth party in the House of Commons, but regaining its official party status. Its share of the popular vote was also third most in the election, behind only the Liberals and the Reform Party. In Alberta, the widely popular Ralph Klein would also campaign for the Progressive Conservatives rather than the Reform Party, helping them in the province. He would state, quote, In any campaign, there will be different messages. An angry message, for example, attracts an angry voter. End quote. You took this campaign right over the top, right into the history books. In Atlantic Canada, where Liberals went into the election with 31 of 32 seats, a protest vote pummeled the party, with powerful ministers losing their seats. Health Minister David Dingwall and Defence Minister Doug Young. Before the polls had even closed in central Canada, the Conservatives had won back their official party status. Newly elected Conservative Peter McKay, son of former Tory cabinet minister Elmer McKay, summed up the early mood. And, uh, they're sending a message to them now. They're, they're upset about the, uh, the high unemployment, they're upset about high taxes and the way the government has chosen to spend the money. So uh, we're seeing the, uh, the outpour of support for the Conservative Party. The Liberals will form the next government. In vote-rich central Canada, the scenario changed. Ontario remained liberal country, and the party's majority was saved by winning almost every one of the 103 seats. In Quebec, the Bloc Québécois shrugged off a difficult campaign and won the majority of seats in the province. 
Well, the party met its goal of winning more seats than the Federalist, Liberal and Conservatives combined. It won fewer seats than in 1993, and its popular vote dropped to just below 40%. This campaign will have proved once again that reconciliation of the aspirations of Quebec and those of the rest of Canada. The bloc will no longer be Canada's official opposition. That goes to reform. As expected, reform did well in Western Canada, coming close to a sweep in Alberta and maintaining strength in British Columbia. With the election of this parliament, I believe Canada has entered into a season of transition, a period in which old ideas and old forces are dying, but it is a period in which new ideas and new forces are being born. It was also a mixed win for Jean Charest. Picking up seats in the East and Quebec, Tories too were shut out of Ontario and didn't do as well nationally as the NDP. The last three and a half years have been for the Progressive Conservative Party of Canada a long and sometimes difficult journey. The Prime Minister came close to losing his riding and his majority government. But he took comfort in the fact that it's only the second time in 44 years that Liberals have won back-to-back -back majority governments. I pledge to govern for the old country in interest of all Canadians, not just those who voted for my party. And the Prime Minister called on all parties to put aside their regional differences and work together for the good of Canada. With a slim majority government and a strong separatist bloc in Parliament, that is quite a tall order. Susan Bonner, CBC News. Regionally, the Reform Party dominated in the Canadian West, taking the majority of seats in British Columbia, Alberta and Saskatchewan. In Alberta, the party won 24 of 26 seats. Good evening. Preston Manning's address is becoming something of a test for the Reform Party. The question is, should he or should he not move into the official residence of the leader of the opposition. In the past, Manning said the place was too expensive, too fancy for him. Now he's considering moving in. Here's Sasha Petrasik on Reform's Dilemma. Where should the leader of the opposition live while in Ottawa? Here at Stornoway, in the $2 million mansion that comes with the job, a mansion that's been sitting empty since Jean Chrétien moved out four years ago, or somewhere like this in the $72 a night hotel Preston Manning calls home. Yesterday, Manning suggested he would consider moving into Stornoway if the public wants him to. Today, he refused to discuss the issue at all as he headed into a meeting of his new caucus. I think that the, uh, the, the story right now is, uh, is a distraction. Still, it's become something of a test of reform sincerity. After all, it's Manning who spent years denouncing perks, but even poking fun at the house he promised wouldn't become his home. We would suggest maybe we'd get a hold of it and use it as a bingo hall and apply the proceeds to the national debt. Now, though, many reformers aren't so sure. There are reformers who think you should move there, reformers who don't think you should move there. There are regular Canadians who don't. I don't have a problem with them living there. Neither does the former head of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, now a reform MP. Most Canadians I know think that uh, leaders in government should uh, have access to that kind of thing. Others are worried about the message it sends. I have difficulties when I think of our of uh, our leader and his wife moving into a mansion like that when one out of every ch five children are living in poverty. 
Some voters in Manning's hometown are having difficulty picturing it too. Well, it makes him look like a bit of a hypocrite. In the end, he's going to be like any other politician despite his, his protests to the contrary. But others think it's about time a Westerner moved into Stornoway. I think it'll just sort of make him a little bit more obvious to the rest of uh, Canadians, you know, especially in the East. A view shared by this reformer, who also happens to be a political science professor. He should move in and take the entire reform caucus with him. With 34 rooms, the shadow cabinet could each have a single room, and then the backbenchers could double bunk. The whole controversy has Manning's political opponents watching with glee. I mean, it's become a joke, this whole idea that his caucus is pressuring them. I mean, it's, it's all very uh, blatant and transparent and orchestrated and an example of his hypocrisy. Whatever Manning's MPs have to say, they'll likely tell him tomorrow when the Reform Caucus turns its attention to the leader's living arrangements. Manning may even announce a decision on this one issue that seems to be overshadowing all others. Tonight, he'll sleep on it back at the hotel. Sasha Petrasek, CBC News, Ottawa. It was in Ontario that the Liberals won the election, though picking up 100 out of 104 seats, a result that alone would have given the Liberals a minority government. In Quebec, the Bloc Québécois still picked up 44 seats, but the Liberals had 26, while the Progressive Conservatives had 5. In the Maritimes, it was an even split between the Progressive Conservatives, New Democratic Party, and the Liberals. The election would see only 67% of voters turn out to cast a vote, the lowest seen since 1925. By the time the 2000 election came along, three of the five parties from the 1997 election would have new leaders, and the Reform Party itself, despite forming the official opposition, would go through a major name change. I hope you enjoyed that episode and my look at the 1997 election. Next up tomorrow, we're looking at the 2000 election. And I also want to say thank you to the Just Watch Me podcast. I'll actually be on the podcast on Thursday, so go subscribe and check it out. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and I'm on Instagram at Bairdo37. Again, if you like, you can support the podcast through Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash canadaehx. You can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. You can also donate to the podcast by going to canadaehx.com and clicking Donate. And I'd like to say thank you to all of my wonderful patrons. And if I mispronounce any names, I do apologize. Steve Pakin, Matthew Gartho, Lionel Romaine, Dr. Bob Turner, an anonymous patron that I truly do appreciate, Doug Campbell, Reg W., Deborah Carlson, Francis Helbling, Nick Zinri, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Chauve, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Rois, Luke Guess, J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, and Iris Gray. Information from McLean's, Ottawa Citizen, Wikipedia, and Dynasties and Interludes. Thanks. We'll see you again next time. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone. Like Andy's kid. 
<laughs> For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.